Welcome to About Scripture, a podcast designed to take the listener deeper into Scripture and biblical thought. I'm Ed Gallagher, Professor of Christian Scripture at Heritage Christian University. I hope to cover a variety of topics with you about Scripture. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Heritage Christian University, where we help students to thrive in ministry. To find out more, go to hcu.edu. We're also partnering with the Ministry League Network. They have free resources to help the local church all over the world. Download the app in the iOS or Play Store, or check out the website at ministryleague.com. And now, welcome to the podcast. Let's talk about the angel of the Lord. There are several passages in the Hebrew Bible that talk about this angel that's called the angel of the Lord. And it's a description that stands out a bit because not every angel in the Hebrew Bible is called the angel of the Lord. And sometimes the angel that bears this title speaks as if he himself is God. In this um, lesson, uh, I am, I think, going to emphasize uh, what the, I'm going to spend a little less time on actual biblical material and a little more time on how people have interpreted that biblical material, particularly how uh, ancient Jews interpreted that biblical material. I do that partly because you've got your Bible and you can see what the Bible says. You have much less access to what ancient people did with that. And I think you will find that it's fairly relevant to how we think of this angel of the Lord to see how ancient people thought of this angel of the Lord. All right, but let's, let's talk about the terminology. Y'all remember what uh, the, the Hebrew word for angel is? The Hebrew word for angel is malach. So when we see this phrase, angel of the Lord, we're using the term malach for angel. And then if you look in your English Bibles where this phrase is used, such as in Genesis 16, verses 7 and following, the angel of the Lord, you will notice that the word Lord is in all capital letters. Do you know what that means? It means we're talking about the God of Israel, the name, uh, the tetragrammaton is there. The, when you see Lord in all capital letters in your Old Testament, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. So angel of the Lord in Hebrew, that's going to be Malach Yahweh. It appears 58 times in the Old Testament. A closely related phrase is angel of God, Malach HaElohim, which appears 10 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes the story makes clear that the angel of Yahweh, the Malach Yahweh, is the same as the Malach HaElohim, the angel of God. That, that Both phrases are used sometimes in the same story, such as in Judges chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Sometimes the angel of the Lord seems to be just an angel or not even an angel. 
For example, this is Haggai 1.13. Then Haggai, the Malach Yahweh, delivered the Lord's message to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. There, the prophet Haggai is called Malach Yahweh. How should we translate Malach? Probably not as angel in this case, probably as messenger. You remember that Malach means messenger. So Haggai is being called the messenger of the Lord. So there is a clear reference or instance in which Malach Yahweh does not refer to any special uh, being, not even an angel at all, it's just a human being. Uh, another example of that is Malachi 2 verse 7. At other times, the phrase Malach Yahweh definitely applies to a supernatural being, an angel. But there is no indication that this being is anything other than one of God's many celestial servants. In other words, the angel of the Lord is just an angel. There are, I'm saying not always, but in some instances, it looks like the angel of the Lord is just some regular angel. Uh, an example is 2 Samuel 24, verse 16, when David sinned by commanding a census of his people, an angel carried out the punishment for this sin. The destroying angel is identified in this verse, 2 Samuel 24, 16, as Malach Yahweh. He takes orders from God. He seems to be just an angel. There's no indication that he's anything more than just a regular angel. There are several examples. First Kings 19, verse 7 is another instance. Judges 13 is a little harder to pin down. I'll let you think about that one. There are plenty of times, however, where the being called angel of Yahweh, Malach Yahweh, seems to be something more than just an angel. Genesis 16, verses 7 through 14, when the angel of the Lord found Hagar in the wilderness, he speaks as if he himself is God in this conversation. I, the Malachi Yahweh says, I will greatly multiply your offspring. Now, maybe he's just, he's a messenger from God and he's just sort of channeling God's message to her. I guess we could say that. But at least it looks like one way to think about it is that the angel of the Lord in this instance is speaking as if he himself is going to be the agent multiplying the offspring of Hagar. Something we would expect God to promise, but, it, but it's coming out of the mouth of this Malach Yahweh, this angel of the Lord. Another instance is Genesis 22, verses 11 to 18. This is the one about Abraham binding his son Isaac. And you remember, it's the angel of the Lord that calls to him, Abraham, Abraham. And, and he stops. And <clears throat> in that instance as well, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Interesting. Uh, Genesis 31 is another one. Exodus 3, burning bush. Who is in the bush? According to verse 2, Exodus 3, verse 2, it's the angel of the Lord in the bush, and then Moses starts to have a conversation with Yahweh. Well, is he talking to an angel, or is he talking to Yahweh, or is he talking to an angel that is Yahweh? Uh, Numbers chapter 22 is another instance. This is Balaam. You remember how he meets the angel of the Lord. 
fast-forwarding here, there are some instances in which we don't exactly read about, quote-unquote, the angel of the Lord. That phrase is not used, but a similar being might be in the story. You remember the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5, who also speaks as if he himself is God. He's speaking to Joshua. He tells Joshua, take off your shoes. Uh, this is holy ground. Um, and then there's this really interesting passage in Exodus 23. Now listen to this passage. This is God talking. I, this is Exodus 23, verses 20 through 23. I am going to send an angel before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to him. Do not defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion. Isn't that sort of strange? This God is saying that there's an angel who has the power to withhold forgiveness from the Israelites? And then the, immediately God says, for my name is in him. This angel bears the name of Yahweh. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be as an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, etc., etc. Again, that's Exodus 23, verses 20 to 23. So... We have this character called the angel of the Lord. Sometimes that phrase seems to be just a regular angel. Sometimes it's not even a regular angel. It's a human being. But sometimes the phrase seems to be used as a, almost a stand-in for like a manifestation of God. And then here in this Exodus 23 passage, God talks about an angel bearing his name, having the power to withhold forgiveness from people. How do we interpret this angel of the Lord? What are we to make of the angel of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible? The Jewish scholar Moshe Greenberg, this is in 1969, commented on the appearance of the angel of Yahweh in the burning bush. This is Jewish scholar Moshe Greenberg. The Malach Yahweh here in the bush is everywhere refers to a visible manifestation of Yahweh, essentially indistinguishable from Yahweh himself. More recently, this is 2009, another Jewish biblical scholar, Benjamin Summer, agrees. This is Summer. The famous fire in this passage, which burned in the bush without burning the bush, is nothing other than a small-scale manifestation of God. He suggests translating the verse, Yahweh's small-scale manifestation appeared to him as a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. According to Summer, there are times that Malach, the word for angel, that Malach might be better translated as avatar, Greenberg and Summer think that the angel of Yahweh is really just Yahweh himself, 
a manifestation or avatar of the God of Israel. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, we find other examples where Israel's God seems to become manifest under different names, not only the angel of Yahweh, but also, for example, God's wisdom in Proverbs 8, which is created by God, but also somehow participates in the act of creation. Ancient Jews, after the time of the Bible, also recognized these interesting biblical phenomena and sometimes offered interpretations that come close to affirming, or even explicitly affirming, to gods. The name of God also seems to function separately from God at times. As the scholar Charles Gieschen points out, in Deuteronomy, God dwells in heaven, for example, Deuteronomy 4 verse 36, but his name dwells on earth, for example, Deuteronomy 12 verse 5. Or the word of God can be a distinct divine manifestation, as when Abram saw the word of Yahweh, Genesis 15 verse 1. The point is that the Bible offers plenty of interesting, suggestive, provocative statements about beings that are not exactly God, but sort of God. Statements that by no means concern only the angel of Yahweh, but in which the angel of Yahweh features prominently. Ancient Jews did not ignore these biblical texts, but at times highlighted them and expanded upon them. From a later time, this is the 5th or 6th century AD, there is a Jewish work known as Third Enoch, originally written in Hebrew, and it describes the archangel Metatron. Now, Metatron is not mentioned in the Bible, but in later Jewish literature, he became pretty prominent. Go to Wikipedia, look up Metatron. Uh, and in Third Enoch, this archangel Metatron is also identified as Enoch himself. He, Enoch is Metatron, according to Third Enoch. And Metatron is a divine figure. So there's this passage, this is Third Enoch chapter 12, where Metatron says that God created God the actual God, Yahweh, created all kinds of like fancy clothing for Metatron to sort of distinguish him from other beings. And so God gave Metatron all this fancy clothing and a crown. He, and then this is Metatron. He says, he, that's God, he set it upon my head and called me the lesser Yahweh. Now think about that. This is a Jewish text from the 5th or 6th century AD that imagines this other being, an angel-type figure, the lesser Yahweh. And then, the, this third Enoch, he called me the lesser Yahweh in the presence of his whole household in the height. As it is written, my name is in him. So at the end of that passage, the text quotes Exodus 23, verse 21, for my name is in him, and applies that statement to Metatron and calls Metatron 
a lesser Yahweh. There's a passage in the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Sanhedrin 38b, that also interprets Exodus 23, that angel bearing the name of God, as Metatron. Much earlier, the Apocalypse of Abraham, this is a pseudepigraphal uh, work from the first century, gave this angel another name, not Metatron, but Yahoel, and says about Yahoel in the Apocalypse of Abraham, chapter 10, says his, that is God's, ineffable, ineffable means like you can't say it, unpronounceable, uh, unspeakable. His ineffable name is in me. So under whatever name, Metatron or Yahoel, the angel of Exodus 23 pushed ancient Jews to consider the nature of God's identity. In the examples above, the, some Jewish authors concluded that there must be another being separate from God who somehow participates in the divine identity. Some Jews thought this, that there must be a second divine being. Not all Jews thought this. There were other contemporary Jews who were not happy about this sort of approach and instead preferred to read these biblical passages in reference to manifestations of God himself, whether his kavod, his glory, or his shekinah, his presence. Uh, the, these sorts of readings, uh, for these sorts of readings, Alan F. Segal has remarked, the effect is to remove any doubt that the manifestation of divine force can be separate from God. So there's like two, two ways of reading these passages, these biblical passages, two ways that at least I'm highlighting today. These biblical passages about the angel of the Lord and the wisdom of God and the word of God and things like that, two ways of reading it for ancient Jews. Some said these beings are like a second divine figure. Others said, no, 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 there cannot be a second divine figure. That's heresy. There's only one divine figure. It's just a manifestation of God himself. There's one figure. I think this, the, the Jewish interpretations that say it's a second divine figure, that is suggestive for a Christian audience, I would think. Much earlier, the strange figure of Melchizedek from Genesis 14 became the subject of some speculation, as, of course, also in the New Testament, Hebrews 7. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is a work known as 11Q Melchizedek, or 11Q13. If you go to Wikipedia, look up 11Q13, you can read a little description of it, and you can read an English translation of the entire text. It's not long. It would take up like a page, something like that. 11Q13, 11Q Melchizedek. This text interprets seven biblical passages as if they also refer to Melchizedek. So, for example, Psalm 82, verse 1, which says that God stood, Elohim, God, Elohim, stood in the divine council. Psalm 82, verse 1, is quoted as if the God who takes his stand in the divine council is Melchizedek. Melchizedek is thus a divine figure 
separate from God, like Metatron in Third Enoch, and similar to the biblical depiction of the angel of Yahweh and God's wisdom and his word and his name. Around the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were, around the time that they were written, a Jewish philosopher in Alexandria named Philo was composing philosophical treatises in conversation with Scripture. He did not refrain from identifying at times a second God in Scripture that went under various titles, including the Word. And Philo was writing in Greek. So the Logos, he found the Logos in his Bible as a second divine figure. He says this, this is Philo, For nothing mortal can be made in the likeness of the Most High One and Father of the universe, but only in that of the second God, who is his Logos. There's a lot on, if, from Philo about the Logos. I'm skipping a lot of it. But according to Philo, it was the Logos of God, which he describes as, quote, his true word and firstborn son, Philo says this, who was the angel bearing God's name in Exodus 23:21. Much of this should sound strangely familiar to Christian readers. In the words of Peter Schaeffer, the only difference between Philo and the prologue to the Gospel of John is that in John, the word becomes human. Philo was not the only ancient Jew to represent the word of God as a kind of independent divine entity, a kind of hypostasis of God. In rabbinic literature, the Aramaic word memrah meaning word, also serves this function. In one of the Targums of Genesis, we find this translation of the first verse of the Bible. From the beginning, with wisdom, the Mamrah of the Lord created and perfected the heavens and the earth. That is to say, the Mamrah of God was the agent of creation. The word of God was the agent of creation. Throughout the subsequent account of creation in Genesis 1, this Targum represents the Mamrah of the Lord as the creator. All right, so was the angel of the Lord the pre-incarnate Christ? The New Testament does not explicitly connect the Christ to the angel of the Lord, and we should remember that Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 30, apparently thought that a regular angel appeared to Moses in the bush. You can check that for yourself if you want. But later Christians often did identify the angel of the Lord with the pre-incarnate Christ. In the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr argued extensively for the idea that the angel of the Lord is Christ. If you want to check that, that's his Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trypho, 58 through 60. I think he's the earliest writer to explicitly say this. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. Justin also identified the angel of Exodus 23, verses 20 to 23, my name is in him, that angel, with Christ. Not only 
Not long after Justin, Irenaeus said that it was Christ who had spoken with Moses in the bush. As we have seen, such Old Testament passages receive similar treatments in some Jewish interpretations. But for Christians, the second divine figure is, in fact, the second person of the Trinity. Eusebius reflects earlier Christian views when, in the 4th century, he insisted that all the Old Testament theophanies, the appearances of God, such as the three visitors to Abraham in Genesis 18 or the burning bush episode in Exodus 3, all of them were really Christophanies, appearances of God's pre-existent logos, given that it is not right to say that the first cause of the universe uh, thus appeared. That's uh, Eusebius Ecclesiastical History, Book 1. Eusebius, in line with many of his contemporary Christians, thought it ridiculous to think that God the Father, the first cause of the universe, appeared in bodily form to humans. As Christians know, Eusebius thought, that job is the job of the Christ, to appear in bodily form. In the New Testament, the epistle of Jude, traditionally thought to have been written by Jesus' brother, may have been influenced by passages like Numbers chapter 20, verse 16, which says an angel of the Lord, an angel led the Israelites out of Egypt, and Exodus 23, an angel bearing God's name ought to be obeyed. When it affirmed, that is Jude, affirmed that Jesus, this is Jude verse 5, you need to check it in various translations because not all the translations say this. Uh, Jude verse 5 says that Jesus was the one who accomplished the exodus. Jesus is the one that brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and destroyed the disobedient in the wilderness. We have seen that scripture depicts the angel of the Lord as separate from God and yet somehow overlapping with the identity of God, which sounds a whole lot like the way Jesus uh, would describe his own relationship to the Father. Check John chapter 10, verses 25 to 30. Since scripture does not identify the angel of the Lord with the pre-incarnate Christ, we should avoid making confident pronouncements on the issue. But there are reasons that Christians have found this identification so attractive throughout the ages. The traditions about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament provide an intriguing, tantalizing hint at a being who is somehow divine and yet distinct from and obedient to God. Sometimes this angel seems to be just an angel, and sometimes he seems to be much more than an angel. If we hesitate to identify this angel with the pre-incarnate Christ, surely we can affirm that these Old Testament passages already gesture toward an idea that would be seized by early Christians to explain their experience with Jesus.